with you all this morning. Uh, we're, we were here when you guys were here last year at the same time coincidentally and so thankful for that opportunity to see you again and hear from your ministry and uh, just want to extend a real thank you to the to the whole church for how you have cared for us uh, even in our home assignment as we arrived. You supported us while we were in Bolivia, but once we arrived we were welcomed so much by all of you who uh, filled our pantry and helped us with so many things. We have a house because of co- connections here within this church, a house to stay in that's beautiful and wonderful and uh, just feel loved by you all. So we're so grateful to be here. I want to start uh, with a word of prayer to help me. Uh, he, you prayed, but I want to pray as well just to begin our time together. Our Father, we do thank you so much for your great love for us, your great love in redeeming us through the gospel. And Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to have our eyes fixed once again on what you have done through your risen Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be more passionate about what you've called us to do, to take the gospel to the end of the earth. I pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, enable me to Uh, get out of the way of your word so that it goes straight to the hearts of your people, that you reveal yourself to them through the scriptures, Father, and that we are all changed as a result of hearing from you. And Father, that you might be glorified more in our lives as we uh, submit more deeply to you, as we trust more deeply in the promises of Christ, and as we follow what he has called us to do in this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we arrived to Bolivia uh, two and a half, close to three years ago, um, one of the emotions, there were several emotions. You, you kind of um, expect certain things to come upon you. you. You expect to feel a few things when you arrive, and then there are other things that hit you that are kind of out of the blue uh, that you didn't know you would be experiencing. One of them, for me, was a feeling of uh, forgottenness. I remember uh, being overwhelmed by this feeling when I was just walking through the streets of Bolivia uh, in La Paz, in the city. Um, I was walking down a path trying to go find a store somewhere and felt suddenly really alone. And if I'm to be transparent with you this morning, feeling forgotten. Uh, Feeling like I'm in a country that almost no one knows anything about feeling isolated as a family, and feeling like if we were to live the rest of our lives there, we would just sort of drift into the oblivion. In fact, I wrote a prayer letter making a play on words during that time. Uh, you may, if you receive our prayer letters, you may remember it, or probably don't, but it was called Into Oblivion. And the play on words was, we were becoming more Bolivian, that was our prayer and goal, but also this sense of feeling like we were entering into oblivion. Uh, Most people don't know anything about Bolivia. In fact, uh, when people come and say hello to us once again, they mention all kinds of other countries, uh, assuming that we're serving in Belize or some other country. Almost uh, no one knows anything about Bolivia except for the fact that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid died there. I think that's sort of the exclusive information that most people in the States have of Bolivia. And so it's very much a forgotten country. And in my own pride, I, in that moment, feeling a little overwhelmed that if, if the Lord called us to stay there for the rest of our lives, we would just sort of drift into complete forgottenness. And then what surprised me as we moved to the jungle area where we live now in the Amazon 
uh, was that uh, the people that I talked to over and over again have used the same word with us that they have forgotten. They have been forgotten all of these years. They describe themselves as people who have been abandoned, left behind. Uh, there are other ministries to other parts of Bolivia. There are other ministries to other parts of South America. But this particular area, this large region there in the Amazon, people have forgot, just felt completely forgotten. The gospel did arrive to a few larger towns where we live uh, about 50 years ago. But it almost arrived incidentally. Uh, some Bible translation agencies sent missionaries to some of these indigenous people groups to do Bible translations. And so there were no missionaries really sent to plant churches. There were no missionaries sent to evangelize. There were missionaries, really linguists sent, Christian linguists sent, to do Bible translations. As a, and as a consequence of that, those Bible translations, there were a few believers in the larger towns. And there are a few select churches in those larger towns as a result. So the Lord has worked through that. But those missionaries left years ago, and those churches that were sort of planted incidentally were left to sort of survive on their own. And they are, by, by and large, fledgling churches that are dying and have very few resources, support, very little training at all, and there are multiple communities without any testimony whatsoever of Christ where we live. And so in many ways, they are a forgotten area. And so I was thinking through what the text to preach on this morning and thinking about this idea of forgotten, and I eventually landed on the phrase, to the end of the earth, in Acts chapter 1, 8. Because it sounds like that. We feel very much like we have arrived at the end of the earth, uh, where people are forgotten. That conveys the idea of a least reached area, a remote area that still needs a witness of the gospel. And that comes from Acts chapter 1-8, as you know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. NAS says remotest part of the earth, and that's really the idea. The end of the earth, the remotest part of the, of the earth. And as I study this passage... I learned several things, even though I had been through it several times. I learned several more things that I want to share with you this morning. And I'm going to use the questions where, who, when, what, how, and why, the five journalistic questions to kind of walk us through some of those things as we go along here. So here are the questions I want to try to answer. Where is the end of the earth? Who is there? When should we go? What do we do when we get there? How can we do it? And why should we do it? So where is the end of the earth? That's the first question. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the question is, where is the end of the earth? If you put it in your GPS, end of the earth, where does it take you? Where is the end of the earth from the perspective of Jerusalem? Where's the end of the earth from the perspective of the United States of America? It's widely recognize that the book of Acts, chapter 1-8, gives us the outline to the book of Acts. 1-7, through 7, uh, you see the apostles' ministry focused on Jerusalem. 8-12, through 12, focused on Judea and Samaria. And Acts 13-28, through 28, focused on 
the end of the earth. The gospel moves toward the end of the earth as it moves outside the borders of the Holy Land and reaches Rome by Acts chapter 28. And so among Bible scholars even, there's some question as to where is the end of the earth? How would you answer that question? Where is the remotest place of the earth? Some would say that it's Rome. Because after all, the book finishes in Rome. And so Paul perhaps maybe reached the end of the earth in Rome. It was the capital of the then known world. Others would say that the phrase refers to Ethiopia. Because in Acts chapter 8, we know that the gospel comes to the Ethiopian eunuch. But the problem, one of the problems with that view is that the gospel in Acts continues westward rather than southward toward Ethiopia. And it is in Acts chapter 8, and there seems to be progress that's continuing on past that point. But the greatest deficiency with the idea that Rome is the end of the earth, or that Ethiopia is the end of the earth, is that it doesn't take into account, these views don't take into account the biblical background behind this phrase. So if we look at Luke chapter 24 in comparison, we see Jesus said that it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see the parallels to Acts chapter 1-8 here, you have the speaking about the promise of the Father arriving there to stay in the city of Jerusalem. You see the beginning in Jerusalem, and you also see that they are witnesses. And this is clearly a parallel passage, but instead of to the end of the earth, we have here to all the nations. And so Rome by itself is not a sufficient place to say this is the end of the earth. The gospel is to reach to all the nations. The witness is to go to all nations. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul will cite Isaiah 49.6. And I want you to see that verse here. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And here you have a parallel between the nations and the end of the earth. And the idea here is that the end of the earth means that the witness, the gospel of salvation will reach to all the nations. So I think it's clear here that the end of the earth means the limits of the earth. And I really think it's an ever-expanding concept until the gospel reaches all peoples. So we think about the United States of America, as a place that has the gospel. There are churches, there are multiple churches in this area, but years ago, hundreds of years ago, North America would have been the end of the earth from the perspective of Acts 1-8 because there was not a presence of the gospel. But now that the gospel has arrived here, the end of the earth now expands to those places that are still unreached. Those places that still do not have a clear testimony of the gospel. So often churches use 1-8 to describe geographical expansion of their work. Judea, Jerusalem represents local mission work. Judea and Samaria represent the larger region, state, and country. 
And then we have to the end of the earth, which represents international work. But from a purely geographic standpoint, the reality is every single place in America is actually farther from Jerusalem than anywhere in Africa or Asia. In other words, we think of Jerusalem being where we live, Judea and Samaria being further out from where we live, and the end of the earth being further out still. And yet, from the perspective of the biblical writers, this is even further out. And my point in saying that is that it is this concept of remotest place, place without testimony of the gospel is what we should hear when we read to the end of the earth. But it's not merely a geographical concept. It also conveys until all people groups have been reached. And so that's what I want to talk about next. This is a little view into the end of the earth where we live. Here we are getting off a boat to walk up to a community that's off from the river. This is the Benny River. And some of the communities that we work work with, uh, work in, are only accessible by boat. Some are only accessible by walking. Uh, They really feel like the remotest places of the earth in many ways and are difficult to reach geographically. It's one of the obstacles we face regularly is how to get to the places during rainy season when you can't actually travel the river or you can't cross any of the roads. And so this, in in almost all definitions of in the earth, I think, this area tends to qualify. This is a path back to a Chimani village where we're walking to to try to show uh, the Jesus film to them. Many of these communities are called, uh, within uh, mission scholars would call them Unimax peoples. A Unimax people group is a group that can receive the gospel within their community, but for the gospel then to move to another community there are significant cultural barriers. In other words, each community is sort of a a boundary line. The gospel can arrive to that community, can be heard and received, but in order for it to move to the next one and be received in the next one, there's going to be language difficulties, cultural difficulties, other kinds of barriers in the way. And so almost all jungle communities are considered Unimax people groups, and they're difficult to reach. So we believe this is very much the end of the earth as we would define it by least reached groups, groups that are difficult to reach, groups that do not have a sufficient testimony in the area. There are at least 170 communities in our region that are without the gospel, composed of small groups of families that are isolated from one another. And there are few small churches in the larger towns, and all of those are unhealthy. And so we really much feel very much like the end of the earth is where we need to be working in the Amazon jungle of Bolivia. Secondly, I want to ask the question, who is at the end of the earth? And I think we primarily tend to think about geography, as I mentioned, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. But as we study Acts more closely, you start to realize that there's a big emphasis on the who that the gospel is arriving to, to whom the gospel is arriving. So we have in Jerusalem and Judea, we have Jews that are being reached. In Samaria, we have the gospel being proclaimed and received by Samaritans and outcasts. And when we get to the latter half of the book, we have Gentiles receiving the gospel. So when I look at each of these just briefly, 
just want to mention that in the Jerusalem section, which is chapters 1 through 7 in Acts, you have the word Jews or Israel mentioned over and over again because that's really the emphasis. Who is at the end of the earth? Well, we'll see that in a minute, but who is, at the, who is in Jerusalem are Jews, people of Israel, and they're receiving the gospel. Acts chapter 2, it's repeated over and over again. And then when we get to the Samaria section, what's noteworthy in Samaria, the Samaria section is not the geography in particular, but the fact that the gospel is now arriving to the hated Samaritans. You remember Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and the scandal that caused that the gospel would cross over the boundary to this Samaritan woman. And here we see the Samaritans who are despised by many Jews, they're receiving the gospel and being received into the kingdom of God. And in that same area in Samaria, we see the gospel coming to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now what you hear over, over, over and over again in that passage is that he is a eunuch five times. In just a few verses, the man is described as a eunuch. The point is not as much that he is from Ethiopia as that he is a eunuch. And why is that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, eunuchs are excluded from the assembly of the people of God. They can't enter in. But Isaiah 56 looked forward to a day when eunuchs would be able to fellowship freely. Those with physical defects would be able to fellowship freely with the community of God. Isaiah says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. It's a prophecy that those people with physical defects, those people who are foreigners, will be a part of the kingdom of God. And we see that in Acts chapter 8. It's no wonder that when Philip comes upon the Ethiopian eunuch, he is reading the scroll of Isaiah because he has a particular interest in this promise that he as an outcast would be included in the fellowship in the community of God. So we see the gospel crossing boundaries not only coming to the Jews, but also coming to the despised Samaritans and even to those who are excluded to the outcasts. And then in Acts 13.47, when we're in the end of the earth section of Acts, we see many struggling with the fact that the gospel is now coming to the Gentiles. The gospel has moved on to yet other people groups with different cultures and different languages. And Acts chapter 13, verse 47 makes it clear, so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. The point is, it's not only a matter of where is the end of the earth, it's also a question of who is at the end of the earth. And the answer is, people who are in very many different ways distinct from us, in culture, in the way that they look, in the way that they view life, in the way that they live, in the way that they speak, the gospel crosses these boundaries, yet they are all in need of salvation from the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as much as we need to think about the where of the end of the earth, we need to be thinking about the who of the end of the earth. They are real people who need the gospel in their language, in their culture. They are different from us in many ways, but they are created in the image of God, and they reflect His glory in unique ways but like us, desperately need a Savior. 
Our ministry to the end of the earth includes people from this community, which is an Aseha community. Their first language is Aseha, and they have uh, the New Testament in their language. We actually have a copy of it in the back that you can see. They don't have the Old Testament. They're very different from us in almost every way that you could imagine. They think very differently. They live very differently. And yet the gospel needs to come to them. And then here's a picture of a Tacana community called Buena Vista. It's not far from where we live, about 45 minutes. And yet another language, another culture, another people group. We also have Chimani and Quechua and Araona. All of these are people groups that you may never have heard of. They may be forgotten by many, by almost everyone, but they represent the end of the earth. We need to take the gospel to them. We need to be witnesses to the end of the earth to see them. Uh, I, I was, we were singing that song, Unfinished Task, a little while ago, and uh, I'm just going to take a second. There was one verse here that uh, touched me particularly when I was reading it, and I... I just want to take the moment to read it to you um, when we think about the who of the end of the earth. It says, With none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. I don't know if you sing it with all of that in your heart. None to hear their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. So I want us all to be thinking about the who at the end of the earth. There are real people in these communities who have no testimony of Jesus Christ in terms of a specific gospel that would save them. And they're passing into the night. You, you, you really shouldn't be able to sing that without some grief in your heart for the unfinished task that remains before us and a stirring passion that rises up in you to take the gospel to the end of the earth. We've met them. They're there. They're real. And they need to hear the testimony of the gospel, the only one that will save so I want you to think about where is it at the end of the earth. It's the remotest parts where there is no gospel. But I want you to think about who is at the end of the earth. People like the Takana and the Seha and the Chimani and the Quechua. And I want us to go there. The question then is, when should we go to the end of the earth? The next question. And that may seem like a strange question to ask, but I think it's actually coming directly from Acts 1.8. It may be the most significant uh, most significant point in the verse. Even though Jesus rejects the disciples' question about the timing, specific timing of things, there is an element of error in what Jesus says here. So we've seen that Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the end of the earth point to geographical expansion. We've also seen that it points to sort of an ethnic, cultural, people group expansion. But we also see now that it is a reference to eras in redemptive history. So I'm going to look at the passage again in context. In Acts 1.8, if you think about it, it actually consists of three, four very different kinds of locations. The first one is the city, Jerusalem. 
The second two are Judea and Samaria, which are regions. Jerusalem's actually in Judea, right? And then you have to the end of the earth, which is this sort of undefined, ever-expanding area. And so they're very different in that way. So what's the significance of those particular regions? Why Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth? What do these locations have to do with the disciples' question in verse 4? Their question was, what they're told rather in verse 4 is that they're to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. And they respond by asking a question in verse 6, what about the restoration of Israel? And I want you to see that verse 8 is actually an answer to that. Jesus rejects a question about timing, but still answers their question regarding the restoration of Israel. What we see in verse 8 is actually a, a verse that teaches us what is, the, what is the restoration of the King of Israel? What are the promises of the Father? And there are three promises that are answered here that are at least pointed to regarding the kingdom. One is, God promised that the Israelites would be gathered from the nations. They're going to be gathered from all the nations where they had gone. The second promise is that the southern and northern kingdoms would be reunified. Remember the southern kingdoms, northern kingdoms were divided under Solomon's son? They're going to be reunified in the future. And finally, Israel is going to be a light to the Gentiles. All three of these were promises of the Father regarding the restoration of Israel. The first one, gathered from the nations, we see in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now notice what happens in Acts chapter 2. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, Pointing to this promise in Ezekiel chapter 37 that God would bring the Jews from the nations and gather them together. And we see the inauguration of that in Acts chapter 2. It's taking place. God is fulfilling His promise in Acts chapter 2. So Jerusalem, when, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, He's referring to this promise regarding the restoration of Israel. Notice Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia. And he continues on describing Jews who were living in other nations who had come together at Pentecost and the Spirit fell. God is fulfilling his promise to unite the Jews who are scattered abroad. Notice this map. This is a map of the nations listed in Acts chapter 2. And notice how they appear to come from all four corners of the earth to come to Jerusalem. In other words, God is fulfilling this promise, or at least beginning to fulfill this promise in Acts chapter 2. So the mention of Jerusalem in Acts 1.8 is not only a geographic reference, it's also a pointer to the fulfillment of God's promise to regather Jews from all the nations into Jerusalem. Second promise is the reunification of southern and northern kingdoms. Notice Ezekiel 37, the next verse. I will make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be, their king, be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Well, you and I know that the southern kingdom was in the region of Judea, 
and the northern kingdom was in the region of Samaria. So now we have Judea and Samaria listed in Acts 1.8 as a pointer to God fulfilling His promise to bring about the union of two separate kingdoms under the one King, Jesus Christ, who has risen and has ascended and is seated at the throne right hand of God. Acts 2-7, through we see Israelites from the region of Judea receiving the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Then in Acts 8, we see people from Samaria. And so you see people from Judea trusting in the risen King Jesus, and you see people from Samaria trusting in the risen King Jesus, all as a fulfillment of this promise that they will no longer be two nations, and that one King will be King for all of them. God is fulfilling His promises. And the third promise that's shown in Acts chapter 1-8, or at least pointed to there, is the inclusion of the Gentiles. We've already seen Isaiah 49-6, which says, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So Acts 1-8 is really talking about geographical expansion, cultural people group expansion, but it's also talking about an era Fulfillment of God's promises to, re- to restore the kingdom of Israel and to bring in the Gentiles into the kingdom. The point of all of this is to point to the fact that in terms of redemptive history, the era that we are in right now is the end of the earth era. The Jerusalem part of the promise was fulfilled in Jerusalem. The Judea and Samaria part of the promise was fulfilled in Judea and Samaria. Not completely inaugurated, but fulfilled in its inauguration. And now we have the end of the earth. And the book of Acts leaves us with that task yet to be accomplished. That era continuing on. And my point in saying all of that is, when we ask the question, when should we go to the end of the earth, the Bible would say, according to redemptive history, the time is now. You and I are living in the time, God's plan in which all of His people are to reach to the end of the earth. Every person here is to reach to the end of the earth in one way or the other. That is the when that we're living in. That is the era. One of the questions that's sometimes asked of missionaries is, why do you feel the need need to go overseas to do mission work when there's so much need around you here? One of the answers to that question is because Jesus tells us to be witnesses to the end of the earth. To go to all nations. Another is to say, this is the era in which we are to go to the end of the earth. To reach out in our witness to the end of the earth. And that's for every believer who is living now. And so, that may look very different for all of us. It may mean some of us move to the Amazon jungle. Some of us are in Jordan. It may mean some of us are in Signal Mountain. But all of us, Every person in this room who professes Jesus as King is making a concerted and intentional effort in this time with your resources, with who you are and what God has given you to reach to the end of the earth. It is all of our responsibility. And in a very real sense, our family feels the urgency of the now to reach to to the end of the earth. Notice... This is a picture of Carlos and Susana. Uh, they're Takana. We work with them to reach these communities. In Bolivia, it's illegal to enter a community 
without an invitation. An indigenous community can't go in without an invitation. But because we have a relationship with Carlos and Susana, we can actually go into many of these communities. That's how we've gotten our entrance. But we feel the urgency of the now of reaching to this part of the end of the earth because uh, they're in their 60s now and that's old for a Bolivian, particularly in this part of the world. Their uh, health is failing and it's difficult for them to travel with us to many of these communities. And so uh, in many ways, at least humanly speaking, we feel the need, the urgency of the now to get to as many of these communities as the Lord would lead us to. Here's a picture of another couple, Benjamin and Salome, uh, that we work with. And those two couples are our primary entrance to these communities that we go to, uh, to take the gospel. So we really feel a sense of urgency in our work with them. We know we won't be able to travel with them. And we just believe that uh, now is the time for us to be there. And we see the Lord moving in so many ways to open up these opportunities. What do we do when we get there? What do we do at the end of the earth is the next question. I think that's answered very clearly in these parallel passages. Notice in Acts 1.8, it talks, talks, there's a promise that we will be witnesses. In the parallel passage in Luke 24, it describes what it means to be witnesses. Witnesses of what? Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The very next verse in Luke says, and you are witnesses of these things. What things? That the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead and the third, de- the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. You are witnesses of those things. It is a gospel message that we are taking to the end of the earth, to the nations. I want to show you a couple quick pictures here. This is a, this is a Chimani community. They're, they have no electricity, so we took a generator, um, and th- we showed the Jesus film there. This was the first time they had ever heard the gospel in their language, Chiman. And uh, there were as many people there as there are today. The whole community came to watch the, came to watch the film Little kids, all the way to older, there was a man in his 80s there. They were all there, and all of them were glued to the video, and overwhelmed at it. For two and a half hours, kids were seated on the edge of their seats, listening to the gospel presentation clearly in their language for the first time. An amazing privilege to be a witness to the end of the earth. Here are two Chimani men. I uh, brought them Bibles in their language. We have a copy in the back that you can see in literature uh, so that they could uh, continue to work. The man on my left, sorry, my right rather, is uh, walked uh, 20 kilometers to be with us uh, on that day. And so he's returning to a community that has no testimony of the gospel. And so he has some tracts there and a Bible to take with him. Uh, this is a pastor we work with in our local town. His name's Daniel. His wife's name's Milka. And uh, we work with them. I'm, uh, part of our job there, our ministry there, if you will, is to uh, evangelize. But another significant part of it is to work with the few churches that are there. And so working to disciple and train uh, this, this man and some other pastors in the area. This is Joy with uh, some neighborhood kids who come by our house 
who were coming by our house almost every single day so that I would give them coconuts. Um, and so Joy is teaching them, uh, helping them to memorize uh, Bible verses uh, while they're there. Uh, this is uh, Barut and Daniela. If those of you who follow our new prayer letters or follow us on Facebook, we have a secret group. Um, Daniela's uh, had hydrocephalus, and, um, and so she, we, many of you helped to uh, support uh, means to get a valve for her. Um, she's um, trying to get back. She's actually stuck in the hospital again, trying to get home now, uh, but there's political protests and she can't return, so you can continue to pray for her, but it's an opportunity for ministry there. Uh, these are the girls working in the local church, and Caleb also. Um, uh, it's, it's true to say that our kids have as much or more of a ministry there than we do, and so we're super thankful for that, and uh, they're, they're working in the community all the time, in the, in the church, um, talking to people about the Lord. Uh, this is volleyball at the, on the church property. Uh, we play almost every afternoon with people from the community that are, don't attend the church at all, and that's opened up a number of opportunities for conversations. I've had a, a couple of 18-year-old guys or a 20-year-old and 18-year-old guy ask me to walk with them. Uh, afterwards and opportunities to share the gospel. So there are informal opportunities that way too. But that's what we do there. We're witnesses of the gospel, witnesses of the death, resurrection, re resurrection of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of forgiveness to those who would believe. Uh, how can we be witnesses to the end of the earth? And the answer, very clearly, and I'll briefly put it, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in 1.8, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Remember in Acts 1-4, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem. And this, uh, I'm very much for the geographic model of expansion from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. I have no struggles with that whatsoever. But what I would say about that, if we're being precise, is that Jerusalem is not actually their hometown. They're from Galilee. You remember Peter's recognized for his Galilean accent, and uh, in Acts chapter 2, they say, who are these men speaking to, these Galileans speaking to, speaking to us? Jesus wasn't actually telling them to stay in their hometown, he was actually telling them to stay in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was actually the most dangerous place in the world for them. It wasn't a place of comfort, a place they had known all that well. It was the place where their Lord and Savior had been crucified just 40 days earlier. You remember the Peter wanting to avoid any kind of connection with Jesus during that time because he was in fact in Jerusalem where his Savior was about to be crucified. And so you may feel like saying this morning, I'm called to be in my Jerusalem. But be careful what you say. Because what you may in fact be saying is not that I'm to stay in a place of comfort, but rather that God is calling me to danger and risk to be his witness because now is the time to go to the end of the earth to be his witnesses we see that throughout Jerusalem the dangers in chapter 2 verse 13 they're mocked arrested brought before the Jerusalem council chapter 5 they're arrested and brought before the council again chapter 7 Stephen's stoned to death and all of that happens in their Jerusalem if you will not a place of safety and it's clear in Acts that Jesus' witness, his witnesses will suffer as he did. And many of the things we see in the 
lives of the disciples throughout the books of Acts, through the, throughout the book of Acts, is a mirror, a reflection of what took place in Jesus' own suffering. So how can we be as witnesses to the end of the earth in the face of that kind of struggle, that kind of persecution and suffering? And the answer that the book of Acts gives is the Holy Spirit. When they're full of the Holy Spirit, they speak with boldness. When they're full of the Holy Spirit, they see Jesus. When they're full of the Holy Spirit, they fend off the spiritual wicked forces. When they're full of the Holy Spirit, they're guided as to where to go next. It is the Holy Spirit that gives them the power to endure and to be faithful witnesses even to the end of the earth. And I'll finish here. Why should we be His witnesses to the end of the earth? One answer to this question is simply that the Lord has commanded it. We're in this same chapter in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. What's mentioned over and over again in that passage is that Jesus is lifted up or he goes into the heavens. The point is to say that this is the risen and ascended Lord Jesus who's giving the statement, You are to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And make disciples. Jesus has that kind of authority. Acts chapter 2 says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so, one answer to the question, Why should we go to the end of the earth? is the Lord of heaven and earth commanded us to. But another reason is that there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. Acts chapter 4 12, we sung that again in that song. The unfinished task. There is salvation in no other name under heaven. He's the only name. People in the Aseha communities and the Quechua communities and the Chimani communities, they worship the trees and the spirits of nature. The trees and the spirits of nature do not have power to save them. There is only one name under heaven by, all, by which all men might be saved. There are people living in communities who are born, live their entire lives, and doubt and die without hearing that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. There are 125 Chimani communities. 125. 36 Takana communities, 7 Seha communities, Araona communities I don't even know about yet, Quechua communities, many of them are isolated and most of them are without testimony of Christ. And the final reason, and perhaps uh, the most biblical, most significant biblically, is that He is worthy that we be His witnesses to the end of the earth. Notice Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 12. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white clothes and palm branches, were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Final reason that I would say that we're all to be involved being witnesses to the end of the earth is that He is worthy. 
He's worthy of the worship from all tribes and all languages and all peoples. He is worthy that there are Takana men and women standing before Him, bowing before Him in heaven and saying, Blessing be to you. All honor to you. And He is worthy that there are Aseha and Chimani people standing before Him, bowing before Him, giving Him praise. He is worthy that we go to the end of the earth. And you hear that even in our English phrase, right? We, we hear that in, in love songs or love poems. I would go to the end of the earth for you. And I would say, let every person in this room, let us all say with a sincere heart, Jesus, we would go to the end of the earth and we will go to the end of the earth for you. Because you are worthy. You are worthy. We're after worshipers of our worthy King. And so let us go. Let us take the Gospel to the Dakana, the Seha, the Chimani, the Quechua, the Araona, and people groups we don't even know yet. So that they might no longer be forgotten. That they might hear the saving Gospel. I want to close just by asking you to do me a, favor, a couple of favors, uh, I want you to stand up in just a moment, and I'd like for you to wave, and I'm going to take a picture of you waving, so that Carlos and Susana, and Benjamin and Salome, and the people we work with, will know that they are not forgotten. You really can't imagine what it would mean to them just to see you, through this simple act, showing that you are supportive of this. Supportive of them, their work that they do there with us, and that you, they're not forgotten, having felt forgotten. So I'm going to do that in a second. In the back, we have a table. We'd love for you to stop by there. We have a secret Facebook group, and you can join that so that you can kind of get our messages that we can't distribute to everybody. We'd love for you to be part of that or sign up for our prayer letter. And the other thing is we have some index cards, and if you would be willing to just write a small message to Carlos and Susana on one of those index cards and drop it in a bowl for us, we'll translate them. And we're going to go back to these people who have so long felt forgotten and tell them they are not forgotten any longer, right? And your messages will help us do that. We're going to put them in photo albums and do that. So let me finish like you finish all sermons, right? I'm going to take a picture of the congregation waving, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, if you guys would stand up. And I'm going to take a video first. And then I'm going to take a photo, okay? I didn't get permission to do this beforehand. You should be waving. In Spanish. You should be waving in Spanish. Okay, now I'm going to take a picture. A couple pictures, hang on. Waving again. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll be finished. Father, just pray that you would work in our hearts so that we desire the things that you desire. That we have a passion the way that you have a passion for your glory to fill the earth. We, we sing songs about it, Father. And they're true from our hearts and yet we know when we're singing them that we want there to be more of it. That we want to be even more sincere. That we want to have more integrity with the songs we sing. So there are really prayers this morning, Father, that you would help us to be about the unfinished task 
being witnesses to the end of the earth. Because Jesus alone can save, and there are people who need to hear about his saving work. And Jesus alone is worthy of the adoration that they give. We pray these things in his name. Amen.